And as we now come to Your Word, that's what we pray for us as well. Not that Your Word would only reach our ears, but that the Spirit would place it in our hearts, would press it onto our hearts in order that we would not only understand through His illumination of Your Word, but that we would be convicted to act upon Your Word. Help us, O Lord, to be not just hearers, but doers of Your Word. Teach us, O Lord, to walk in obedience to You. Teach us, O Lord, to seek Your Word, to seek Your will. And we pray, O Lord, that You would feed us now with Your Word. Feed us and nourish our souls, that we may be strengthened, that we may be encouraged, but above all, that we may grow in Christ's likeness. And above everything, we pray that Christ would be exalted during this time. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, please turn to John chapter 16. We'll be continuing our study in John chapter 16 today. You know, one of the things that I've learned to pray over the last two years, roughly, uh, since COVID started, uh, was is that Christ would continue to build His church. Um, praying exactly what He promised He would do. Because we know that He will answer that prayer. And, and that's an encouragement to me because I know that all I have to do is preach. Paul tells us how, how the church grows, how, how somebody comes to faith. Faith comes by hearing. And he goes into all these questions in Romans chapter 10, like how is anybody going to believe if they don't hear? How is anybody going to know about Christ if nobody preaches to them? How are they going to hear Him of whom they've never heard? So, all we have to do is continue to gather and preach the Word, and God's purposes will be worked out in that, just like they have been throughout history. And that has been just such an encouragement to me over the past two years, just keeping that in mind, that it's not about me. It's not about anything that I do. All I try to do is be faithful and let the Lord do His work through His Word. You know, one of the most beautifully worded um, doctrines or statements that I've ever read is the answer to question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one asks this, it asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation." Because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. I want to talk about something that has encouraged me over the last year and a half. It's wonderfully articulated right there. Right there, that Christ 
has done everything that was necessary for my salvation and yours, and that he continues to work on our behalf. This answer that it gives for the Heidelberg Catechism, that's what it is. It's a summarization of what Christ has done and continues to do for us. So what has Christ done for us? Well, he stepped out of eternity, stepped off his eternal throne, took on flesh, lived a perfect sinless life and through his death he redeemed his people so that each of us belongs entirely to him he ransomed us through the shedding of his blood atoning for our sin and he has freed us from being in bondage to sin and the devil in both his life and in his death christ did everything that was necessary for our redemption In his life and death, he did everything that was necessary for building his church. He satisfied God's wrath in the place of all who would believe in him. But here's the question. Okay, so Jesus died for my sins and for for your sins if you believe in him. But the question is, how does that objective fact of our personal redemption become something that we experience, become a subjective reality for us. To put it another way, why are we Christians? Why did we come to Christ and thus able to affirm everything that the first answer, uh, the first question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism uh, asks and answers? R.C. Sproul once answered that question saying this. He said, quote, at this point in theology, we make a distinction between the accomplishment of redemption and its application, end quote. Now to clarify that a little bit for you, the accomplishment of redemption is what happened on Calvary in the past. The application of His work is in the present when we come to Christ. I imagine the question, why are you a Christian, has been asked by countless atheists and skeptics um, more times then you could possibly count. Only God knows, right? But if you understand what the Bible says about man in his natural, unregenerate state, you have to see, you have to understand that it is literally a miracle, a direct, intentional action taken by God, a work of God. That's why anybody is a Christian we would be wise to never lose sight of who we were prior to God's grace working in us. When Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, uh, in the days of Noah, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You have to see that this verse described all of humanity apart from God's grace. So it described even you apart from God's grace in your unregenerate condition. When Paul wrote, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. He was saying that about you and me. Apart from God's grace working in us, 
in our unregenerate natural condition. Paul says to the Ephesians, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Again, that's, that's you and me. You and I were, were slaves to the devil, to the world, and to the flesh. We were walking on the broad road that leads to destruction. Now, if all these things are true, and they are, the Bible affirms that all these things are true, that they're exactly who we once were, how in the world did you and I get to where we are today? Where we believe in Christ, where we have surrendered our lives for Him, where, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, that we are made wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. How do we get there? Well, let me just say this if your answer starts with the words, because I fill in the blank, let me just stop you right there. No, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were not wounded. You were not impaired. You were not spiritually frail or spiritually ill. No, you were spiritually dead, which means you could do absolutely nothing about your condition. So there's biblically absolutely no basis for any answer that explains why you're a Christian that begins with, because I fill in the blank. This is the subject of uh, the text that we come to today. Jesus has been speaking words of instruction and encouragement to His disciples throughout the past few chapters. He told them that He is departing from them. He's leaving them and that He would go to the Father and ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will serve as a witness to Christ in the world alongside the church who would also witness to Christ before the world. It is the responsibility of the church to bring the message of the Gospel to the ear. But it is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to bring the message to the heart. And as He does that, He applies the work of Christ to the individual sinner. Now, over the course of the past 120 years, you're probably, you probably wouldn't be surprised to learn that there have been more books written on the Holy Spirit than there were in all 19 centuries prior to that uh, combined. And I would imagine that would have to be due, uh, number one, to the advent of the printing press, okay, but also uh, due in large part to the charismatic movement, which tends to give far, far too much attention to the Holy Spirit. Do you know who the Holy Spirit wants to give attention to? Do you you know who He shines the light on? Not Himself, but on Christ. He only points to Christ. He never draws attention to Christ. Himself. He only points to Christ and Christ's work on Calvary. So in the passage that we come to today, we'll be looking at uh, chapter 16, verses 4 to 11. We'll get what was for the disciples, kind of a preview of the ministry of the Holy Spirit's um, work and ministry toward the world. Uh, The point of this passage is that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment as the church preaches on and bears witness unto these things. Let me say that again. The point of this passage is that the Holy Spirit will convict the world 
of sin, righteousness, and judgment as the church preaches on and bears witness unto these things. So if we're looking at the context of our passage today, we understand that the time uh, for Jesus to be arrested is very near. This chapter, chapter 16, actually records the final words that Jesus spoke to the disciples as an entire group prior to His arrest and death on the following day. And as Jesus approaches His death, He knows, he knows that the success of His mission is sure. And he knows how it's going to play out. But he also knows that the disciples have no idea. And they they may not be feeling so sure. And so he has warned them. He has comforted them. He has instructed them so that they will not stumble. In other words, so that they will not fall away from the faith or so that they will not be tempted to sin. So we'll start uh, in in, in the middle of verse 4. Um, of chapter 16. Uh, Jesus says, These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Many have taken these words of Jesus in verse 4 the wrong way when he says these things. I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. He doesn't mean that he was withholding information from them as a way of ensuring that they wouldn't go anywhere, uh, that they wouldn't say, oh, forget it, the, the cost is too high. That's, that's not what he's saying. No, he means that if they were ever frightened, if there was ever a possibility of them stumbling, whether that's uh, being apostates or um, being tempted to sin, He was personally there to comfort them, to assure them, to encourage them and strengthen them and to prevent them from stumbling or falling away. Think of that time that Jesus calmed the wind and the waves out on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples thought their time to to die had come, of course, and Jesus was just sleeping through all of it in the, the bow of the boat. But they wake Jesus up wondering if he even cares that they're all about to die. And Jesus gets up and he rebukes and calms the storm. And the disciples are so scared at that point, they're so frightened by this that they turn to each other and they ask, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But Jesus was there not only to calm the sea, but to calm their hearts, to calm the disciples' hearts, to fill them with peace. He didn't have to warn them about this storm that was going to be coming because he was personally there with them. That's what he means by this statement that uh, these things I, I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Because he was there to personally comfort them when that was what they needed. But now the time has come for Jesus to leave His disciples. He has warned them because in a very short amount of time, He will depart from them and He will no longer be with them. And because sorrow is filling their hearts, they're not even thinking about the big picture. They're not even thinking about the fact that Jesus has warned them repeatedly throughout His ministry that this day was coming. They're not thinking about where Jesus is going. No, He's he's 
told them where he's going. He told them back in chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. He said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's told them exactly where he's going and why he is going there. He's also told them that when he goes, he will ask the Father and they will send the Holy Spirit. But the disciples are just, they're always so slow to understand. Throughout the gospel texts, they are so slow to understand. Jesus had told them over and over again on multiple occasions that he would end up going to Jerusalem to die, and it never did quite seem to completely register with them that that was really what he meant, and that that was really what he had to do. But the fact that now, as Jesus is encouraging them and admonishing them and trying to build them up and warn them and prepare them, the fact that in this moment their hearts are filled with sorrow as Jesus is warning them of what's going to happen, how they'll be hated by the world for His sake, seems to indicate that this time it's starting to click. They're starting to understand, okay, He really is going away from us. He really is going to die literally. They're finally believing that He really is going to leave them, that He really is going to die, that the time really has come. And so their hearts are filled with sorrow. They didn't understand. The reason that their hearts are filled with with sorrow is because they didn't understand the exquisite, magnificent glory and the grandeur of what Jesus was telling them about what was to come. They couldn't understand that what seemed like loss and very heavy loss would actually be their greatest gain. All they've been able to to think of and to process up to this point is the great loss that they were about to suffer as a result of Jesus' departure from them. And the fact that when He's gone, the world will hate them and persecute them. But Jesus wanted them to have hope in the midst of their sorrow. He wanted them to understand and to fully grasp the fact that their loss in Him in the flesh was actually their gain. It was entirely and only for their good that Christ would return to the Father where He would ask the Father and the Father and the Son would send the Holy Spirit to Christ's people. Now there's a principle that applies here to us as well, friends, and to all of God's people from throughout the ages. And that is that God is always working in such a way in all of our lives that even our most difficult and even our most painful trials and apparent losses actually turn out to be gains. The thing that makes this principle so difficult so seemingly impossible for us to grasp, for us to wrap our minds around and believe is the fact that we are just so short-sighted. When we're in the midst of a, of a thick, heavy, deep loss, we can't see the forest for the trees. 
But the truth is that if we knew, if we had any idea of all the things that God knows and all the things that God is planning and the love that God has toward us, the deep, rich, unfathomable, immeasurable love with which God loves His people, we would find this to be true. That all of our losses, his actions, all of our afflictions, anything that might seem like loss in the moment is actually gain. We would agree with God that this is good. That this is what we need in order to grow in Christ's likeness. Think of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 71. This verse, I, I don't know if there's a more... Uh, if there's a verse that's more contrary to the thinking of the natural mind, I don't, I, this verse is as contrary to the wisdom of the flesh as any verse in all of Scripture. The psalmist says this. He says, It is good for me that I was afflicted. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Notice it doesn't say, It's good for me that I'm being afflicted in the present tense. Maybe that's because it rarely seems good in the moment when we're being afflicted. But for God's people, the day will come, either on this side of glory or on that side, when we'll look at every affliction, every trial, every sorrow, every earthly loss, and say with the psalmist, it's good for me that I was afflicted. Grasp that truth, friends. Grasp that truth by faith. It will serve you well. See, it's entirely possible for us to be so consumed, for us to be so narrowly focused on our own plight and our own problems and our own sorrows and trials and afflictions that we just take our eyes off of the bigger picture. We see that bigger picture a little bit more clearly when we're removed from sorrows and trials. But when we're in the thick of it, it's hard to take our problems off of ourselves. And that's what's happened to the disciples here. Jesus has told them exactly where He's going and why He's going there. He's told them very specifically. But, but here He does say, uh, none of you asks me where are you going. Uh, that's not a contradiction, by the way. Earlier, uh, they did ask where He was going and He did tell them. Uh, so what does He mean when He says this here? What he means is that they were so focused on what looked in the moment like personal loss. They lost sight of everything that they were about to gain. They lost sight on how this was going to not only glorify Christ and carry out His kingdom purposes, but how it was going to be of the greatest benefit to them. They can't see how this could possibly be in their their best interests and entirely in their best interests, even though it is. Look what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Those words, it is to your advantage. How ironic is it that Jesus is essentially agreeing with the sentiment that was expressed a few chapters ago by Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus had 
caused something of a ruckus around Jerusalem by raising Lazarus from the dead. And all Caiaphas could say was, it's better that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. His words there, it's better that one man die. It's better. Same words that Jesus is using here. Jesus used the exact same words in the Greek that Caiaphas is recorded as having said. Now, if the disciples thought that it was better that Jesus stay with them in the flesh, if they thought that it would be better if Jesus didn't go away, if they thought that it was better that He didn't die, if they thought that it would be better if He didn't go and return to the Father who had sent Him and prepare a place for them and ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to them, they were deeply, deeply mistaken because this was the finish line of the race that Christ came to to run. This was plan A. And there was no plan B. There is no sense, there is no way that it would have been better for Jesus to stay. Jesus didn't come primarily to simply accompany 12 friends through their lives as friends. He, He didn't come primarily to show us how to be a better human race. No, He came above everything else to present Himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of His people. And the disciples had completely missed this. They they would eventually come around, right? They they would eventually understand. When when Jesus rose again, uh, and especially when the Holy Spirit came upon them on uh, on Pentecost, they would start to be able to look back and and understand everything. They'd eventually come around. But at this point, they don't see the glorious, the wonderful, magnificent purposes of Christ's mission. They don't realize that the finish line that He's about to cross is exactly what He came to do. All they can think about is themselves and their own impending loss of their best friend. You know, when our children are small, we carry them everywhere, everywhere they need to go. We, we, we carry them. And even when they start taking steps and learning how to walk, we often carry them, especially if there's more distance than they would really be able to cover uh, or if we need to get someplace in a timely manner. But even after that, even after they're walking very well on their own and able to cover long distances, we still buy strollers to put them in uh, rather than making them do too much walking or uh, risking too much wandering. But the time comes when our children reach such an age and such a maturity and such a size that they must walk on their own. It's better for them to learn to walk then than later when they reach that point. And that's the point spiritually that the disciples themselves have come to here. They've learned to love and trust the Lord. They've learned to follow Christ while He was with them in the flesh. But now, they're going to have to trust the Holy Spirit, whom Christ and the Father will send together uh, to be with them. In Sinclair Ferguson's words, there will be sufficient grace for them in their time of need, but tomorrow's grace doesn't come today. End quote. It's better for them that Christ depart that he go away and that he send the holy spirit 
how impossible it must have been for the disciples to, to wrap their minds around that truth in the moment. Their, their minds had to just be spinning at this point, but they needed the Holy Spirit. They had no idea how badly they needed the Holy Spirit, but they needed the Holy Spirit. Why? Because His ministry, through their ministry of the Word, their preaching of the Gospel, their bearing witness to Christ faithfully to an unbelieving world, that was the key to their mission, to the church's mission, to the disciples' mission, being successful and being accomplished. Friends, let's understand very clearly that what was the key to the mission of the disciples being successful and accomplished is still to this day, to this very day, the same key to the church's success in bearing witness to Christ. Do you want to see sinners turned from their sin and converted? Then pay very, very close attention to what Jesus says next. Verses 8-11. to Jesus continues, He says, And He, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Helper, And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. This, friends, this right here, is the reason that Jesus said that it would be far better that He depart from them and that He would eventually ascend into heaven where He would reign over His kingdom at the right hand of the Father rather than staying on earth and reigning over an earthly kingdom. This is why. See, the disciples were were just like you and me. They They could preach until they were blue in the face. You can preach until you're blue in the face. They could bear witness to Christ and testify to people of their need for Christ from sun up to sundown Monday through Sunday every week for the rest of their lives and without the ministry of the Holy Spirit they would never have been able to convict or convert a single person because they could not convict them they couldn't convert them because they couldn't convict them they could preach they could preach faithfully they could preach regularly they could preach loudly compassionately and even persuasively but they like us they they would have been able to reach no further than the ears of their listeners the holy spirit however is able to deliver the message that we preach to the heart of a person see the unregenerate person the unregenerate sinner doesn't need to change his mind His mind has worked his entire life to suppress the truth about God. Because that's all the natural man knows how to do with spiritual truth. No, the unregenerate sinner doesn't need to change his mind. He needs to change his heart. The problem is he can't. He can't change his heart. That's something only God can do. He was born, the unregenerate sinner was born with a heart of stone that was cold toward God, that would not move toward God, that would not respond to God. That's why God told Ezekiel of the new covenant, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, the heart of flesh feels 
The heart of flesh responds to God. The heart of flesh desires God and His glory as the greatest good. That's why God said next to Ezekiel, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes, and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. This is what the unregenerate man needs. He needs the grace of God. He needs the Spirit of God to do a work within him. He will never strive to obey God. He will never seek God. He will never obey God. He will never accept the truth about God until the Spirit dwells within him, giving him a new heart and causing him to walk in obedience to God's commands. But for that to happen, the Holy Spirit must bring conviction to the hearts of fallen, hell-bound sinners. He must do, the Holy Spirit must be the one to do the supernatural work that neither the disciples nor anybody else sense, not you, not me, not anybody else can do. He, the Holy Spirit, will be the one who will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, let's spend a minute dissecting some of the details of that sentence uh, in order to ensure that we're all on the same page. First of all, what does it mean to convict? Now, some would say that uh, it means that the Holy Spirit acts as a judge, uh, passes some kind of judgment against the world, either as a judge or as kind of like a a prosecuting attorney who develops and builds a case against uh, a proven criminal. Um, But there are a few problems with that view. Uh, The biggest problem is that Christ Himself uh, has been appointed to judge the world. And He's going to do this at the end of the age. This is what He said back in chapter 5 when He was explaining His healing on the Sabbath of the crippled man. That He was the one that the Father had assigned the duty of judging the world. That's something that Paul touches on in his sermon on uh, Mars Hill in Acts. That Jesus is the one who will be the judge. Now to convict, in this sense that Jesus is speaking here, to convict simply means to bring to the light or to reveal the truth about something, to, to expose the truth about something. So that's what it means, convict, when Jesus says convict. The second question that we have to answer is, who is the world? When Jesus says He will convict the world. Now we've noted several times Throughout our study of John, uh, that the Greek word here, cosmos, actually has ten different meanings, and some of those meanings are similar to others, but some of them are completely opposite other definitions. Uh, Sometimes cosmos refers to the natural physical world, like the animals and the the universe and the the trees. Uh, Sometimes it means just planet earth. Uh, Neither of those definitions work here. Those things don't need to be convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. Sometimes cosmos means uh, refers to the satanic world order that opposes God and stands in opposition to His kingdom and His purposes. That could fit here, but the purpose of this conviction is conversion. The world in this context, in this sense, uh, you know, stands against God because they haven't been convicted of sin Uh, righteousness and judgment. And so for that reason, I don't believe it refers to 
the satanic world order. I believe there's another meaning of cosmos, uh, and that is used in reference to the elect, and that that definition is the best fit here. After all, there are far, far more people walking the broad road that leads to destruction than there are that don't. Uh, Jesus says that the road that leads to life is narrow and few find it. So if we take the view that he convicts those who continue to reject his gospel, uh, we we must conclude that the Holy Spirit fails a lot. Uh, that, That he fails more times than he succeeds since few find the road that leads to life and many walk the broad road that leads to destruction. But let me ask you this. Can the Holy Spirit fail? No, he cannot. Perish the thought that the Holy Spirit, that God can ever fail, that His plans in any sense can ever be thwarted. No, the Holy Spirit successfully convicts and converts all of the elect who leave the world to follow Christ. So I believe that's who Jesus is talking about here. It's the Holy Spirit's ministry to the elect who aren't regenerate yet. The Holy Spirit's ministry involves working within their hearts, working within the hearts of lost, ruined sinners in such a way that A, they are convinced of His message regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment, and B, that they are directed both by the church and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to Christ, to Christ as the great remedy and redeemer of their ailment, of their fallenness. This is exactly what we see once the Holy Spirit enters the scene in Scripture. That that scene is found in Acts chapter 2 when 3,000 people were converted on Pentecost as a result of Peter's first sermon. It it was his first sermon. And and this sermon was taken to the hearts of his hearers so heavily, it was weighing so heavily upon their hearts that they they were convicted. I, I mean... Can you imagine that happening? 3,000 people being convicted during your first sermon. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about somebody preaching their first sermon and 3,000 people being convicted by it and eventually converted by it, uh, I have to say that is humanly impossible. Uh, Nobody, nobody can do that. Without the ministry of the Holy Spirit convicting those 3,000 of sin, righteousness, and judgment, they would have stoned Peter to death for blaspheming God. But instead, what we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, is that they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Because they were so pierced to the heart. They want to know, what's the remedy for this? What do I have to do to get rid of this, this weight that's pushing on my heart? What a wonderful, what a glorious and blessed thing it is when the sinner is suddenly made aware of their guilt and they desperately, desperately seek the remedy for it. This is why it was better that Jesus depart and send the Holy Spirit. Jesus accomplished the salvation of His people through His perfect life and His death on a cross, and the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to the heart. 
apart from this work, apart from this glorious Christ-exalting ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of ruined sinners, none would believe and none would be saved. Look at how Jesus lays out and reiterates the details of exactly what the Holy Spirit reveals as true to a person. The first work of the Spirit in any Christian's life is to convict them of sin. Of sin. Sin is what has been humanity's problem since Genesis 3. Sin is what has separated us from God. Every pain, every evil, every sorrow, every trial, every affliction that anyone has ever faced can ultimately be traced back to sin. Sin is what made us, by nature, enemies of God and made death necessary. After all, the wage of sin is death. Jesus did not step down from His eternal throne in heaven and take on flesh in order to give us a better economic system, a better political system, a better judicial system, a better educational system, or or any of those other worldly things. Those things might be man's priorities, but they were not Jesus' top priority by a long shot. Paul says it perfectly when he writes to Timothy and says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a purpose statement. The reason that Jesus came into the world is to save sinners. And yet, this is why so many hate Jesus. Because they don't want to accept the fact that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. That's exactly why the Pharisees hated Jesus. Because they refused to see themselves as sinners who needed a Savior. The church's testimony to the unregenerate, fallen, lost world must include the guilt that people bear as a result of their sin. If they don't realize that they are guilty of their sin, they do not realize that they need a Savior. We can't agree with the world's assessment that people are basically good. It's just not true. No, the opposite. People might not be as evil as they possibly could be. Even Hitler could have killed one or two more people. But sin has corrupted everything they've ever thought said or done most people think that hell is just a place that god has made to put the the really really bad people like the hitlers and people like him most people agree that god should uh, do something about the wickedness of the world that he should judge the wickedness of the world but they don't see and they refuse to concede that that wickedness prevails in their own hearts And the truth of the matter is that we alone, as the church, sharing the gospel, bearing testimony to Christ, we alone can't convince anyone of their guilt in these things. But the Holy Spirit can. And He does. That's the first part of His ministry. Only only the Holy Spirit can drop what feels like a million pounds of guilt and shame and conviction on the sinner's heart, convincing them not only that they have sinned, but that their sin debt is far too great for them to pay. And thus justice demands that God's wrath be poured out on them eternally in full in hell. Jesus says here in verse 9 that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. 
Now, he's not saying that they've, they've committed no other sin other than you know, disbelief in him. Rather, what Jesus is saying is it's, it's simply saying that the supreme demonstration of man's wickedness, of man's sinfulness, is the fact that he has spent his life suppressing the truth about God and refusing to believe in God's only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they have hated Him and they have done nothing but sin against Him their entire life, every nanosecond of their life, even though He has never been anything but gracious and kind unto them, even though He gives them their next breath. For the Holy Spirit to convict the world regarding sin, friends, here's the application. We cannot neglect the reality of man's sin and the guilt that they have when we share the gospel. A faithful ministry cannot and does not avoid this topic. We don't try to lessen the weight of it by calling it something else. The world isn't guilty of uh, mistakes or, or brokenness or at any other euphemism for sin. No, they are guilty of sin against God, period. If we neglect the reality of sin and guilt, the world will not see the necessity of Christ. The Holy Spirit must bring this message to the heart, but we must preach it to the air. It's good for a person to be convicted of sin, but that conviction alone won't save them. The second thing that the Holy Spirit must convict a person of, the second truth that He must reveal to, uh, to them, concerns righteousness. The world must be convicted and convinced of, of two truths. Number one, that God requires perfect righteousness for anybody to be saved. And number two, that as far as righteousness goes, the sinner is completely bankrupt. He has none to speak of. James Montgomery Boyce illustrates this really well by telling the story of a group of POWs in World War II in a certain camp. They were allowed to receive mail, and so somebody sent this, uh, this POW camp a bunch of Monopoly games for them uh, to, to play to pass the time. Well, over time, the fake currency that came along with the game became the actual currency within their POW camp. And if you've ever played Monopoly, you know how it ends. It ends with one person having all the money. So there was one player who ended up winning with thousands and thousands of dollars of this counterfeit play money, Monopoly money. Well, when the POWs were eventually set free and when he was able to return home, uh, that money meant a lot to him, and so he brought that play money home with him and actually tried to deposit it in a bank. Uh, it, it was real in his mind. It was worth something in his mind, but obviously that doesn't change the fact that it was counterfeit money, that it was only play money. Of course, the bank didn't accept his deposit. It was rejected. But in a similar way, all humanity has is a fake counterfeit sense of righteousness which is absolutely worthless and will be rejected as a deposit in heaven's courts the holy spirit works to press that truth into the heart of unregenerate sinners that they are completely bankrupt as far as righteousness is concerned they have none to speak of simultaneously the holy spirit must convict 
the ruined sinner of the true righteousness of Christ. Jesus says, in concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven prove his righteousness, bear testimony of his righteousness, and the Spirit vindicates him in this sense. God declares in Christ's resurrection that Christ's life was perfectly sinless and righteous that he upheld all the demands of the law, that he never transgressed the will of God, not for even one nanosecond. This is all part of the gospel. The righteousness that we need isn't found in us. It has to come from something outside of us. It's only found in Christ. Only, only when Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. That is, it's credited to us by God through faith. Only then can we stand before God without the guilt of unrighteousness. Third and finally, the Holy Spirit's ministry involves conviction of judgment. The sinner has to know that there's a consequence for his sin that awaits him if he keeps going the direction that he's going. Again, this is a subject that the church, so many churches try to avoid. But this is what the Holy Spirit must convict a sinner of through our preaching. Jesus declared back in chapter 12, verse 31, that by His death which was coming soon, He said, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's what Jesus says here. He says when uh, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He goes on to say, because the ruler of this world has been judged. He was judged in Christ's death and resurrection. Paul said this, he said, when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Christ's death and resurrection included the judgment of Satan. His lies were exposed. All of his schemes were exposed. And if he was judged, if Satan was judged, how can those who belong to Satan, how can those who fight for and defend and promote Satan's kingdom of darkness expect to not receive judgment as well? In fact, the same judgment that Satan himself has received. The broad and easy path that they walk along with everyone else in the world only leads to destruction. It only leads to an eternity in hell. But the Holy Spirit works to press this truth upon the heart of the sinner until they are finally ready to ask. Just like the 3,000 who were cut to the heart on Pentecost with conviction, and just like the jailer who knew his guilt after seeing the prison doors open, after hearing Paul and Silas as they sang in prison, who asked them, what must I do to be saved? Why would he ask that? Because the Holy Spirit has convicted him of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so he asks, what must I do to be saved? Is there hope for somebody like him? Absolutely. Of course there is. But only because the Holy Spirit convicts for the sake of converting ruined sinners. And the church testifies to the answer, which 
is clearly laid out in Scripture for us. You must believe in Christ. What must you do to be saved? Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Christ. You must believe in Him. We preach to the ear, and the Holy Spirit presses this truth upon the heart. And the new heart, the heart of flesh, is eager and is willing and desires to believe. Christ's atoning work is then applied to them by the Spirit, and then they are now free to live under the dominion of Christ in His kingdom rather than the bondage of sin and Satan in the dark, fallen kingdom of this world. This is how sinners are converted into Christians, friends. This is why you and I believe the way that we do. Do you believe that Christ took, his, took your sin upon Himself? Do you believe that His perfect righteousness has been credited to you because you have no righteousness of your own to speak of? And do you believe that when God looks upon you, He doesn't see your unrighteousness, but that He sees Christ's righteousness and that you're clothed from head to toe in Christ's righteousness rather than in your unrighteousness? Do you see how bankrupt you are as far as righteousness goes apart from Christ? And do you believe that He bore the wrath of God on your behalf? If your answer to all these things is yes, 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 then praise the Lord because only the Holy Spirit could convict you of these things. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment as the church preaches on and bears witness unto these things. In light of that truth, therefore, let us be faithful to share the gospel to share the truth about these matters, confident that as we do so, the Holy Spirit will work along with us, pressing these truths into the hearts of our hearers. May the Spirit continue to use our ministry of the Word to convict and to convert many. All for the glory of Christ, our great remedy, our great Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for this truth that Christ has gone to You to prepare a place for us and that He asked You to send the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We thank You for those who preach the message to our ears that the Holy Spirit delivered to our hearts. And we pray, O oh Lord, that You would give us courage, wisdom, and clarity to continue doing that, to continue doing the same, to preach the truth of Your Word, the full counsel of Your Word, the uncomfortable parts of Your Word to unregenerate sinners in order that the Holy Spirit would sovereignly work in the hearts of those He will convert. We pray, O Lord, for the world around us. We pray that You would draw many to Christ. 
And we remember that you are not only a God who ordains the ends, but you ordain the means. And we remember that faith comes by hearing. So give us courage to do that, to preach that they may hear. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would fulfill Christ's mission of building the church by convicting and converting many for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.